This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. We are most fortunate today uh, to have our keynote speaker, a dignitary from China, to deliver this special address on China-U.S. relations. He comes to us courtesy of our U.S.-China People's Friendship Association, Friendship Liaison in China at the national level. We are deeply indebted and grateful to them as well as to uh, Professor Sun. Uh, Professor Sun received his doctorate from Columbia University in New York City and is now professor of the Institute for International Studies and director of the Center for U.S.-China Relations at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Professor Sun is the author or editor of 18 books on comparative politics and U.S.-China relations. He is considered one of the leading scholars in the field of American studies and U.S.-China relations in China. And the synopsis of his address is on the reverse side of this program document. I can say uh, that our keynote speaker must be incredibly persuasive he was here in December arguing, uh, presenting the case to our U.S. government why the U.S. government should come out publicly against uh, the referendum uh, in Taiwan that is uh, scheduled um, uh, in uh, March. And as a result of his personal intervention, our Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, uh, did exactly that and expressed the U.S. Uh, position uh, that was uh, against that uh, referendum. So we, uh, we have not only an outstanding scholar, but a very influential and persuasive individual. Professor Sun. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, President Novak, uh, distinguished guests and friends. Uh, it's a great honor to be here today. It's happened to be my birthday, and uh, so I care about Chicago. <clears throat> and thank you very much. The uh, first time I came to Chicago was back to 18 years ago. That also my first day uh, landed uh, in the United States. So yeah, I really care about uh, this opportunity. Uh, actually, when I uh, say goodbye to my 14-year-old son and told him I was coming to this event, uh, my son asked me, uh, Dad, what uh, are you going to talk about to your American friends? I said, oh, I'm going to say something about uh, dealing with the challenges and, and the paradoxes uh, in U.S.-China relations. Uh, I said, Dad, is that not a good topic? And I was curious as I asked him, what is good, good topic then? And he said, you should say something pleasant. Uh, tell your friends about uh, uh, Chinese acrobats or, or pandas. Or if you don't know this thing, at least say something about Chinese food. You know? 
he said, uh, just remember, try your best and make yourself likable. So I think Chinese kids are so smart. They know the secret of uh, American politics. But anyway, uh, I genuinely believe that uh, people in the, in the United States and China uh, have some kind of natural affinity. So let me begin with some of uh, my observation on this very important relationship. Uh, I think there are some kind of a yin and yang images of China. Uh, I call these two contrasting images the panda images of China and the super draws, the old movie, super draws image of China. The panda image sees China as a uh, charming country, rich in culture and heritage. And China is a gentle panda that may walk slowly, but looks uh, appealing and won't hurt anyone. And uh, so some people say China is an economic adolescent that finally will emerge into an economic superpower. So let me tell you a story of what a Nobel Prize winner in economics, uh, what he says about China. Uh, Professor Joe Stiglitz, who teaches at Columbia University, is a friend of mine. I hosted him a couple of years ago when he visited Shanghai. Uh, one night, I remember I, I showed him what I consider the best part of Shanghai, the bond. And uh, we had a wonderful discussion. And uh, after I showing him, I showed him the beautiful part of the bone. And he told me his estimate of income of Chinese people is about 10,000 US dollars. I said, no, Joe, because you are, the, uh, you are the Nobel Prize winner. So you stay in a five-star hotel. People treated you, treated you as, a, as a king. So seeing is now believing. And uh, Shanghai is now China. I said, no, 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 Sunny. I said, uh, because I study economics, so I have my own way of observing, studying the actual living income, uh, living uh, income of, uh, in different countries. So he told me he went to the fanciest shopping mall in Shanghai to see who was shopping there. And we went on the street. And uh, here, the study the frequency of ambulance and uh, the fire truck presence. presence. And he even went to a construction site to see what was in the lunchbox of construction workers. Uh, surprisingly, he found that in a 50 cent, US 50 cent, two quarters, you know, in a 50 cent lunchbox, a construction worker can get meat, fish, vegetable, rice, and a free drink. You know, he, he, that's his observation. You know, the average income in China is about $10,000. But I think he's overestimated. Uh, so, uh, let me tell you another story. Uh, I also hosted uh, President John Henry, uh, who is the uh, president of uh, CSIS, a, a very famous think tank uh, in Washington. And I asked him, What's your, uh, how do you like China? He said, oh, I have no problem. Whenever I go and meet people, those people can speak English. I can have very uh, easy dialogue with them. He said, I do have a problem. 
if I go to Florida because I don't speak Spanish. And then he told me another very interesting story. I invited him to come to my uh, class to give a talk to my students. And he said on his way back, on his way to my uh, university, I was teaching at Fudan at that time. Uh, he said he saw a Chinese farmer who was riding a bicycle. There's two baskets of piglet that Chinese farmer trying to sell in the market. But also that in same Chinese farmer was holding a, a mobile phone that's making a phone call. That's probably it's, it's so amazing. That probably is a more accurate picture of China. Yes, I think uh, uh, this is a, what you can call the uh, panda image of China. The super draws image uh, of China, however, pays more attention to the dark side of the country. I think that reflects a lingering suspicion of, about China's rights, uh, China's developments. Think about the media coverage on the uh, toy safety problem, on American trade deficit to China. And all the uh, unpleasant things happened over the last two years. And people have criticized China frequently and harshly. Uh, to be very honest with you, I agree with some of the criticism because I do believe those who criticize us or those, those are also our friends who really care about us. And I think there's uh, also challenges for China. I have a lot of problems for Chinese government. You have to find a way to deal with. Uh, so if we take a look at the facts, uh, I think we find the daunting statistics. China now consumes one third of the uh, world's coal, 30% uh, of and 27% of its steel, and 40% of the uh, Siemens products. China's goal trying to quadrupling its GDP in 2020 well, it depends on meeting serious challenges in terms of resources, environment, and uh, balanced developments, coordinations between economic and social developments. Uh, take the environment, for example. And we, we can see that China's current rate of growth are creating some kind of unsustainable pressure on the uh, environment. Uh, I think. 300 million Chinese people do not have access to clean drinking water. Well, 400 million people live in areas with dangerously high level of air pollution. And one third of the land is affected by acid rain. And also the Yellow River whose blood what once called the China sorrow is now dry downstream for part of the year. If we look at the big picture, we, it's even more astonishing to find that the country still has 350 million people live on less than $1 a day. By 2030, China will have a population of over 400 million people who are, will be over the age of 65, 65. 
The government needs to figure out how to develop a welfare and a pension system. Also, the growth of migrant labor between city and the countryside is a floating population. It's estimated to run between 100 to 200 million. That's add to social instability. People who worry about China also worry about the political future of the country. China's one-party dominant rule, according to a famous uh, American scholar, James Mann, will pose a shining model of wealth without liberty, and therefore will challenge the current international order and thus pose a threat to international peace. Let me recommend you two popular books just published last year. Uh, James Mann, The China Fantasy, How Our Leaders Explain Away Chinese Repression, and Joshua Kulanzik's Charm Offensive, How China's Soft Power is Transforming the World. You will see how these two American scholars have interpreted the ponder image of China and the super draws image of China. Ladies and gentlemen, although I worry about the, uh, the China's future, I'm kind of a positive and believe that no matter what kind of mental image we, believe, we may believe in, China as a whole is a moving forward. As a political scientist who studies US-China relations, I really feel the changing perception on China because 10 years ago, people were talking about the coming collapse of China, talking about the potential threat to the United States. About five years ago, people began to talk about China's rise. Now, I think the most popular word that policy-minded people use when talking about China is responsible stakeholder. Well, China become a responsible country among the powers of the world? That is also a question we Chinese people ponder. According to uh, Orange Outlook, a Newsweek-like magazine in China, people have asked 10 questions about China's future. What kind of country will China turn out to be? Is China's rise a rise of socialism or rise of capitalism? Will China become a regional power or international balancer? Will China become a black hole in the international resource market? Or a good partner in the inter international economy? Will China become a new threat or, in or international partner? Will China become an angry country with, with its young people saying no to Western, Westerners or a rational state? that can be further integrated into international community? These are the questions the Chinese people ask. I think China is searching for its soul when faced domestic pressure of transition and the international influence of globalization. In a very profound way, China is still a core power. It doesn't want to shake the world. It wants to work with the world. Let me give you another example. In recent years, in foreign policy, the priority of Chinese national interest has moved 
from emphasizing the traditional political and security issue to looking for lessons from other countries in dealing with new challenges. In top decision-making meeting of Chinese foreign policy, the discussion by political bureau members are not on defense or security, but rather questions related to how to help Chinese enterprises go abroad, and how to protect overseas Chinese, and how to deal with global warming. We sincerely hope that our American friends can help us explore the future. Ladies and gentlemen, since 1784, Chinese Americans have shared a lively dialogue over how to achieve common causes in the countless pursuit that animated our great nations. Thomas Jefferson took care to promote what he called the good disposition between the United States and China. And Abraham Lincoln, in his first annual message to Congress, predicted that the, the American extensive trade with China, and of course, Franklin Roosevelt, made it American purpose to join with China in defense of freedom. These historical indicators of friendship have been engraved on the heart of Chinese people and have made them to look upon American people with gratitude and appreciation as their best friends in the world. This may sound just, just look just like a blind official assurance, but I ask you to apply this test to contact your American friends who have, been, who have lived spend a significant period of time living in China or working with Chinese people. I'll be very surprised if you don't find overwhelmingly support for the idea that American people really do get along with, in a natural way with Chinese. And China, that China is one of the very least anti-American countries in the world today. It is a sentiment which despite obvious, inevitable, and inevitable disagreements on some point, makes every Chinese feel that he can always talk to American with an open heart and receive him with open arms. Today, the, China, the United States and China are facing common challenges as well as opportunities. China has worked with the United States in the area of anti-terrorism. For example, the FBI has set up its office in Beijing. And China has also supported the United States in non-proliferation, the six-party talks, the reform of the United Nations, and many other issues. Of course, uh, in addition to these common interests, there are also specific challenges that I want to discuss today. They are related to trade, Taiwan, democracy, and some other contentious issues. I refer to them as the challenges of partnership paradoxes. That might sound a bit awkward, but let me explain what I mean here. First, let me say something about trade 
and economic relations between our two countries. Today, roughly about 15% of the total good purchased by the United States are from China. To some extent, this has made this has eased inflationary pressure in America and has saved American consumers $20 billion a year. It can be argued that the Chinese government has helped American economic stability because low-income people here can better afford their basic need. The trade surplus China enjoyed has largely been reinvested in the United States. Actually, China is the number two foreign country holding the American treasure bond. Still, some of our American friends will feel uncomfortable about this because according to American statistics, the, the U.S. trade deficit with China increased from $8.3 billion in 2001 to about $250 billion by the end of last year. Some Chinese people began to worry about the backlash in the United States, calling for an economic war against China's economic expansion. Let me give you one example to illustrate this point. Everyone knows the IPR has been a hot button issue in our relationship. The export of IPR concerned industry, including biotechnology and IT, composed almost half of American export. And there are million, 18 million people engaged in these industries. It is estimated that IPR piracy has cost American firms something about 2.5 billion in lost sales. And the IPR piracy rate in China, according to American statistics, is estimated at around about 90%. Indeed, I really regret that IPR piracy seems widespread in China. DVDs of the latest Hollywood blockbusters can be found on street corners for less than $1. And there is no doubt that China needs to do a better job to protect American IPR. I want to assure you that Chinese government really care about this and has strengthened its protections and law enforcement. Ten years ago, the term IPR was a very strange word in Chinese vocabulary. Now it appears constantly in newspapers and TV programs and has become a very popular word in our daily lives. China has established an IPR office which was headed by the Vice Premier, Madame Wu Yi, and a hotline was established to take a complaint and an even IPR day was also created. Every year on September 8th, the Chinese government will invite about 100 CEOs of multinational corporations who, which was operated in China to get together with Vice Premier Wu Yi. And uh, some other ministers and governors also come and uh, listen to their complaints. 
the CEOs or executives of these multinational corporations can say whatever they want. And if they provide more detailed information on IPR violations, Chinese ministers and governors have to promise a deadline to solve the problem. I think it's basically an issue of enforcement. It's like the election in the United States with 50 individual battlefield for the presidential candidates. You have to work hard in each of these states. In China, there are about 32 provinces, and we must fully enforce the law in each local provinces. This is not an easy task because the whole country is still in a mode of getting rich is glorious. And people may, may still want to take advantage of lax law enforcement. IPR is just a, IPR issue is just an example on how we might begin a new round of serious dialogue on trade and economic issues. China is going to be hit more often and with more serious trade cases, but we don't have to lose hope on dialogue. As a matter of fact, the United States and China have conducted three rounds of strategic dialogue over the last two years already. I myself participated in the process and I truly feel that we made progress already. For example, we have reached 30, over 30 agreements in eight disputed areas last year. Among these agreements was a significant step to allow tourist company to arrange trips for Chinese travelers to visit the United States. This is a real pro progress achieved by the strategic economic dialogue. In sum, I believe that we must consider a serious question. <clears throat> is there an emerging Chin America, C-H-I-M-E-R-I-C-A, or American China in the world economy? I'll use a metaphor here. When traversing a dangerous terrain, two mountain climbers usually rope themselves together so that if one fell, the other can catch her before she plunges into crevasse. If the accident comes at the wrong moment, both climbers may fall together. China and the United States are two mountain climbers, and the compl complicated interdependence has made the two countries dependent on each other much more than either would probably choose. Now let me turn to another par partner's paradox, the debate related to democracy in US-China relation. China has attracted the world attention and its unique economic and political trajectory has led to questions such as whether or not democracy made in China is also possible. It, sounds, it should be pointed out that judging by Western standards of multi-party competition, elections, and meaningful parliamentary actions, China is stalled in political reform because it seems that one party's dominance will continue in the future. But to a lot of developing countries, especially in 
Latin America, Central and East Asia, people see China as relatively stable and a successful country. I firmly believe that China cannot meet its ambitious goals of reform, development and opening up without good governance, protection of individual freedom and adherence to the rule of law. But however, as far as the US-China relation concerned, struggles over de democratic ideas have led the two countries to deal with each other in a strategically suspicious way. From American point of view, the United States is the only nation in the world that is founded on a creed. And America is the last best hope of Earth. No country in the world has benefited more from the worldwide advance of democracy than the United States. From Chinese point of view, the issue of democracy has also become possibly the most tangled web among Chinese domestic and foreign policies. The Chinese government is in an awkward situation. On the one hand, they still believe that the United States is trying to shape the values and the forms of government in the developing world, thus meddling in Chinese domestic affairs. On the other hand, it also believes that the United States is still a beacon of democracy and individual freedom in the world. China not only realized that the American experience in stabilizing a large country's political system is crucially important to China's political reforms, but also genuinely believe that the United States is a role model for China's economic developments. In my opinion, I think China and the United States are two driving forces of one airplane and that they can fly high and make the whole world a better place to live. American values are more influential in China than people outside China realize. But why China has decided to pursue its own model of democracy? The logic behind it can be found in the following fourth school of thought. The first school of thought argues that there is no good model of democracy in the world. The history of international relations has showed that power politics, rather than practice of democracy, had and will continue to dominate the world arena. The second school of thought comes from China's own experience. China's relative success in its economic performance has also shaped the leadership confidence with regards to its political choice. To China, the Beijing consensus of the Chinese model of development is getting a lot of attention from developing countries, while the Washington consensus has lost some appeal. The third school of thought derives from lessons China learned from countries that embarked on transition to democracy. The road taken by members of the former Soviet bloc, which have since the early 1990s of rapid change, including overthrowing Communist Party, has been totally rejected by the Chinese government. In Chinese eyes, countries that suddenly adopt 
Western-style democratic norms, almost all encountered turmoil and instability. The disadvantage of transition have discouraged China to embark upon a similar road. The last arguments made by Chinese scholars mainly says that the American model of democracy is losing its institutional attractiveness to China. To a lot of Chinese, if the United States want to sell democracy to the rest of the world, it needs to get much better at operating it at home. It matters how good America is, not just how strong. In this sense, controversial policies adopted by the American government, such as detaining terrorists suspect at Guantanamo Bay without trial and the passage of Patriot Act, have also damaged the U.S. reputation and the American image as a promoter of democracy. The United States have failed to set an example for others and act like a lonely superpower, superpower that shoots first and asks questions later. So to a lot of Chinese, there is also a yin and yang image of the United States. To a lot of Chinese, you know. Uh, the United States of America is both a beauty and a beast. It is a beautiful country, Meiguo, but an imperialist empire, Meidi. That's the, uh, some of the uh, perception I really want to share with you. To make progress on democracy in international relations, I propose to establish a strategic dialogue on the issue of democracy. It might begin with the United States and China, but then can be then expanded to include other democratic states such as India, Japan, and the members of European Union. By learning what lessons can be learned and transferred from the Western model of democracy, the dialogue might contribute to a potential, what I call, constitutional soft landing, the gradual empowerment of the Chinese legislature, the National People's Congress in China. Ladies and gentlemen, both the United States are experiencing great transition. Bob Zolik, former the Deputy Secretary of the State Department, now the head of the World Bank, once said that the biggest enemy of America is America itself. I truly believe that for China, the longest journey is the journey inward as well. The two countries are in, in is capably a part of both the world order problem and the world order solution. So in dealing with these new partnership paradoxes, the United States and China should seek consensus, define principles, and work out proper policies. If we continue to be friends, understand one another, and respect each other, we'll definitely make the US-China relation broader, deeper, and stable than they are today. And ladies and gentlemen, in 1972, Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai greeted President Nixon and said to him in a toast, the people and the people alone are the motive force in the making of world history. We are confident 
he went on to say, that the day will surely come when this common desire of our two peoples will be realized. I truly feel that in some way, America's influence in the world has never been greater than it is today. No country in the world is more of the world than the United States. The greatest import in America today is the people. When I walk in the street of Chicago, New York, or Miami, I see people of all races and religions from all over the world. I'm also excited and uh, admire the new great dreams that Chinese people pursuing in the reform area. China is at present in the source of rebirth. The overall picture may appear at present somewhat confused, but Chinese people as well as Chinese leaders are confident of the final outcome. According to Feng Shui, eight is a lucky number. So in 2008, Chinese people have three big dreams. In March, the new National People's Congress will be convened, and the new leadership will be formally confirmed. In August, actually on August 8, the double happiness in a sense of Feng Shui, we'll be watching the Olympic game in Beijing. In November, China will celebrate the 30th anniversary of Deng Xiaoping's announcement of open door and reform policy. It's truly amazing to see how over the last 30 years a sea change occurred in China. In 1978, China's GDP was about 78 billion US dollars. Last year, it's increased to nearly three trillions. In addition to the growth of GDP, China has become the world number one country in terms of mobile phone use and the world number three auto customer. Now over 200 million people in China are internet users. Today, on every street corner in China, not only you can see fake DVD, but you can also see McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chickens, and Pizza Hut. By the way, uh, McDonald's sold here, uh, Big Mac sold here usually over $3, but in China it's only sold for $1.40, something like that. <laughs> so now Chinese young people get together at Starbucks and they use products from Motorola, Dell, and HP. And China even exported a fine young Chinese man, Mr. Yao Ming, to the United States to play in the NBA. What is more fascinating the people-to-people -people contact between our two great countries have been further enriched. It is estimated that more than, more than 100 million people have traveled back and forth between the United States and China. Last year, over 1.3 million Americans traveled to China and 440,000 Chinese visited the United States. More than 3,000 people fly over the Pacific ocean each day. Now there are about 60 flights a week between us and in about two years the number will be four times bigger to 249 flights a week between two countries. 
the people-to-people -people contact have aroused Chinese enthusiasm and passion and interest in learning about American culture. Over 120 million Chinese people are studying English today. Most Chinese primary schools offer English as foreign language. Over 180,000 Chinese have studied in the United States, and now 60,000 Chinese students are enrolled in American university, including the University of Chicago. Although in the United States, over 1,000 universities and colleges and 200 middle and high schools offer Chinese courses or courses on Chinese languages, the number of American students who study as undergraduate in Chinese universities are only about 3,000. I'm worrying about this. And I worried that in a recent Asian society survey showed that 40% of US high school students couldn't name the Pacific Ocean. You know better than anyone else that culture can win hearts and minds. I'm grateful to the US-China People Friendship Association in Chicago and the Chinese People's Association for Friendship with foreign countries in Beijing for making possible this annual China Symposium 2008. And I thank you, for, thank you all for caring about our relationship. I think the future U.S.-China relation will depend on three key things. The rise of Chinese power and the American response to it, and Chinese, China's changing role in the international system, and China's domestic evolution, particularly the need for it to shed undemocratic aspects of its system of government. I sincerely hope that through this China Festival, our American friends can explore and enjoy Chinese culture and, of course, Chinese food. I also call for an American festival in Beijing, in Shanghai, or in some other cities in China next year. We all want to learn more about American culture and American dream. So I look forward to seeing you again in China. Don't forget to bring some great Chicago food. Thank you. Thank you very much.